0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these
1: findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with social, creative, and visionary Trabian Shorters. There is, as always, a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hi, <laughs> Trabian. Yes. Hi, Krista. Hi. Hi. It's so good to meet you. Yeah. Great to meet you. Um, I have been asked to send regards from Rachel Levin and David Aww. Bornstein, a couple of people <laughs> we have in common. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank well, you. thank you for thank you for making time for this. I'm mm-hmm. really happy to I'm really happy to send your voice and ideas out into the world of 2022. Yeah, which we're all hoping will be more generative. <laughs> um, okay, Chris, are we ready? okay
0: just, just before we start uh, how yeah, long yeah, is the uh, say- no I just uh, how long oh, is the uh, I'm going to try to
1: go we'll probably go about an hour maybe a little more I know that you have a hard okay. stop at three so we'll okay I'm we'll, just trying we'll to pace myself that. yeah thanks um yeah, don't I'll 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 pace you. <laughs> I'm in charge here. <laughs>
0: I like that. Okay. So I, just, I was I was explaining I to Christopher to su- Oh, sorry. <laughs> Surrender. No, I was just I was, gonna say, I was explaining to Chris how things work in my household. So you you you've you've nailed it. I'm good oh, with that.
1: Good. Okay. <laughs> good. <laughs> um, and well do you have any questions any other questions for me before we start?
0: No, I, I shared again with uh, Chris and Julie that I, uh, you know, made the mistake of looking on the site beforehand and saw that your last, you know, uh, podcast was with uh, Desmond Tutu. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, I'm not going to set my, you know, I'm not going to uh, expect myself to live up to that one. I'll just be me.
1: Yeah, so, you uh, be you. I'm yeah. more excited to have you. Yeah. Um, great. Well, so where I'd like to start, you know, I'm always curious about the roots in a life. Yeah. Um of of what become that life's passions and callings and and, and kind of animating questions. Mm. And um and also about however, you know, you would define the religious or spiritual background of your earliest life of your childhood. And I, you know, I've read a little bit so I, I I know you 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 have a a really interesting story. you, you grew up in Pontiac, Michigan. Is that right? Yeah. So how do you think about, where does your mind go if you think about these roots of what you care about now?
0: Oh, yeah. It all starts with my grandparents. So mm-hmm. I was born and raised in Pontiac, Michigan. Uh, my mom was still a teen when I was born. And so I was raised, you know, for the early formative years of my life in my grandparents' household, right? And my my uh, grandmother and my grandfather are both from the South. And so... Mm-hmm. They are literally this sort of um, almost stereotypical deep southern Negro Christians, right? They, mm-hmm. they, they were, my grandfather was raised, and my grandmother actually, but I, I learned it more from my grandfather. They were both raised in the love doctrine, you know, and the idea that uh, in order to practice Christianity, you must love people the way that God loves people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I got that, you know, early and often because uh, as far as I could tell, grandma and grandpa knew God personally. Uh, right, and, you know what I mean, like <laughs> yeah. and so and so,, uh, and so, uh, so yeah, it it really did infuse the household um, when I was growing up
1: mm. uh, I looked I, so they started this the Kingdom of God outreach ministries, is yep. that right, or your grandfather yep. started that? I just yep. looked at the website. I mean, I know that there there are other leaders now, but it mm-hmm. it you just feel, even just from being on the website, that that's a really special place,
0: you know, let me let me elaborate on that a little bit if it's okay. Yeah. Um. So my grandfather, uh, you know, was just a very straightforward, down-to-earth kind of person. And so when he retired from General Motors, and a very loving person, you know. Yeah. So when he retired from General Motors, he wanted to create a community um, a community center for kids, you know, after school, safe place to play and all that. Uh, and it was his bishop who told him to, you know, stop messing around, go ahead and start your ministry, right? And so yeah. grandpa started the church. But he also bought the lot next door and created the community center. So the church and the community center were started at the exact same time, because what he really wanted to do was be of service to the community. And he always, his his orientation to like, I guess, to spirituality, but that's not how they talked about it. His orientation to life was um, was always about you know giving people what they need uh, and um, and literally loving them, like loving them in, in, in action. Mm.
1: Um so there's this interesting turn in your story. So you were born in a factory town that was struggling, yep. right? Yep. Yep. Um and then in 5th grade, um your teachers um discover or ascertain that you have a genius level IQ. Mm-hmm. Um and that takes you eventually by the 10th grade to a scholarship to a private boarding school that is, that is, but that's, you're not kind of sent far away. It's not, you're, you're several miles from your home, but you've, I'm, I'm just so curious about how that experience of straddling different worlds yeah. that are within our society, Yeah, how that uh, formed your path.
0: Yeah. So, uh, great research. Uh, <laughs> so let me m- maybe facet it, uh, this way, um, I was born in a dying factory town right at at the time that the factories, the automobile industry was uh, experiencing the slide. Uh, Consequently, uh, gangs and, you know, drugs and community destabilization, like all that stuff happened while I was coming of age. So I feel like I started out in a working class kind of experience. But by the time I was 12, we lived in the hood. You know, it wasn't. Well, there were there were, you know. There were real threats, like legitimate uh, safety threats, all the time. Um, uh, the place had changed, right? Yeah. And 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 the and the adults who had worked in factories, you know, for generations realized that the factories were never coming back. So there was this moment of like genuine dis- despair. You know, yeah. people didn't literally didn't know what they were supposed to do next or how how to make a future for their kids and. You know when you get, when you got the combination of being you know black and um, poor to working poor during the Reagan administration as uh, um, you know crack is on the rise and yeah. people in your community of, of all races can't see their future.
1: Yeah.
0: People gave up hope, uh, and that that was real. Uh, and that's why my grandparents were such this you know they were this, they were this odd creature uh, in our neighborhood because they had a relationship with the creator that superseded these things. And so, yeah. again, they continue to love and they continue to, to um, work in the build. And to your point about- um,
1: You could also say they were asset framing in the way you see things well, now, right? I like, mean, well, honestly, yeah, focus, honestly, yeah. their north star was love.
0: Well, actually, you know, if, if we want to connect those dots, here, here's uh-huh. the fact of the matter. Um, asset framing is a direct uh, expression of the love doctrine. Right, Mm -hmm. it is defining Mm -hmm. people by their aspirations and contributions before you get to their challenges. So whatever's going on in someone's life, you don't ignore it, but you don't define them by the worst moment or the worst experience or the worst potential. Like none of that. You have to look past their faults (laughs) to see who they really are. And even the word, you know, aspiration, we're very intentional about that because it has the word spirit baked into it. So what we want to do, yes. So what we want to do. Is acknowledge the true person, the true spirit living in someone. You know, the thing that motivates them, what gets them moving. It, it is not that they are poor; they don't wake up in the morning inspired by that. Like their spirit isn't moved by that. Their spirit isn't moved by being marginalized or all that kind of thing. There's something that they aspire, you know, to have, to to create, to give to someone else. And if you start your relationship with a person by acknowledging, you know, what spirit is actually living in front of you, then you're going to have a different relationship. But uh, so that so since you mentioned asset framing. Yes and yes.
1: Uh,
0: what what I wanted to maybe
1: <laughs> yeah. to
0: tie it back Going. to your the original mm-hmm. um, comment. Uh, the schools didn't discover that I you know had a high IQ. My mother uh, knew it way sooner, and she advocated for me to get into these different programs. Uh, my entire you know early school life, and it was very hard. Like folks were not willing to test me. They weren't willing to um, you know to to consider me in those ways. I don't know if it was, you know, the school system or racially motivated or whatever, but but she had to work at it. She had to push at it, and finally, uh, when I did get an opportunity to get into the upper bound program, uh, that's when. Oh, sorry, this is actually fifth grade. Fifth grade. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, first grade. Um, oh, okay. So I, I, I jumped ahead. Upper bound was was later in life, uh, but I would say uh, the first scholarship I got was to a place called Roper, um, and that was a consequence of my mom, you know, pushing. Uh, and, and their criteria for even considering me was that I take an IQ test. And that's, that's when they were like, Oh, I
1: see. And I think yeah. there, there was a moment, you know, where IQ, yeah. te- what, what year were you born? Uh,
0: 1967.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was born in 1960. There was that. I think that I don't, I don't, I don't, know if people hand out IQ tests now the way they used to. Yeah. It was a okay. thing, right? Yeah. It was a yeah. thing. So, okay. So that happened to you. And then yes.
0: what? Yeah. Oh, that happened. And then what?
1: And then, Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so once I get the IQ test and I go to Roper and, you know, all of a sudden I'm a smart kid now. And so all my toys change. I can't, you know, I, I don't get to, get, it's not GI Joe with the Kung Fu grip anymore. Now I got to get science <laughs> kits and electronic, which I liked honestly, but I, I also wanted to, you know, do normal stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I definitely get nerd toys and I, and, and, um, and I, you know, not long after that, you know, the, the PC comes out. And so I, Get a chance to start, you know, building computers, which I really liked, and also programming them. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I'm 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 on the nerd track in in full bloom, and uh, and then when I was 14, uh, I get accepted to Horizon Upper Bound again because of my mother's efforts, not because of uh, Mm -hmm. any kind of passivity. Um. And then, uh, yeah, I get a scholarship to Cranbrook, which is a fantastic. Private boarding school, you know, hidden behind cobblestone walls in Bloomfield Hills, right. and um, it's it's very much like being transported off planet because I had lived up to that point, you know, around poor folk and 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 with what what I call regular folk. You know, I, I've been yeah. around regular folk, and Cranbrook is not a regular folk community <laughs> yeah. at all, at all. Um, so very different.
1: <clears throat> you know, one thing that um, that I really appreciate in your. You know not not just in your work, but in how you you know you you how you how you bring these ideas into different communities um, mm-hmm. in including you know, with philanthropists and nonprofit leaders and journalists who have things to learn of uh, from this, and True. you know it, it, you know, what you are presenting is on some level, a critique of the way things have been done. Um, but I find you you, even when you are offering something that is um, that 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 contains a critique or a, a, a um, you know a, an impulse to change the way we see and do and think and speak and yep. act, yep. it's not your you are you're, you, you're not judgmental, you, right? right. And, I, and I wonder, I mean, you're not, in, you're not doing the deficit thing also right. with rich people or right. <laughs> nonprofit right. leaders or journalists. That's so, right. and I'm curious when I think about this time in your life and, you know, so you, I mean, it's just so fascinating because you were, as you said, you were on another planet, but you weren't that far from home. Um, yeah. And yeah. so, I, I just wonder if some of this was planted in you in that oh, experience
0: yeah. too. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm look um I w- just you know picture this a little black boy tech nerd genius raised in the hood right that's Trabian okay so yeah. so the idea that these things don't have to contradict each other that's my life like you mm-hmm. know I, uh, my um you know coming up uh some of my fr- like some of my closest friends were white uh, like my, I, uh, I bring it out to say that um, Michigan is a it is itself a pretty peculiar state, right? Um, you get very extreme yes. views in Michigan. I don't know if yeah. you all been tracking it. That, that's
1: get... actually kind of out in the open now. I don't think it's yeah, a exactly, secret right? Yeah, exactly,
0: right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so so the interesting thing about being raised even in that state is uh, everyone in Michigan pretty much prides themselves on being practical, yet we oscillate between Democratic governor and Republican governor, I don't know, as much as anybody. I don't know if any states switch as often as we do, right?
1: Mm-hmm
0: um and the belief that it is morally wrong for the information economy to take away working class jobs that's the way some folks in michigan see it it's more it's, it's like not not that it is just wrong but it is morally wrong that i have to get a college degree if i want to be able to feed my family that kind of stuff right yeah so when you have when you grow up around folks who share kind of this working class identity, even though they come from different ethnicities and races. Um, and then you toss in race and you see the polarity that comes from that. If you pay attention, like Trabian had to, then you develop nuance. You know, there's there's no right. reason to vilify right. my neighbors and my friends, and, and they see it differently, they feel differently about it, but we end up in the same schools, we end up in the same situation, honestly. Um, and at the end of the day, I really do feel like people who decide to tap into the fear and use the fear as a way of get, you know, gaining power and of, and of keeping attention, that's your, those people are the enemy. Like if, if you're going <laughs> to figure out who you need to be against, you need to be against folk who are telling you that you have to be opposed to someone you've never even met, right? Yeah. Um, those are the folk that, that, that we should you know look sideways at.
1: And that's an interesting way to start talking about your way of seeing and I would say teaching and forming and creating a, a different kind of um, cultural conversation mm-hmm. and model um, because one of the things you're you're pointing out um, is that um, well there's a lot of you know, there's so many I'm 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 really skipping ahead of my notes just based on where oh, we're going. But there's always. so much you know, there's so much formation that you had in different fields. But just you know, to get to get straight to this, I think that what you call deficit framing is yes. is a default. Yes. And and it's not so. What you what you're just pointing out there are people who who play on fear, who consciously manipulate fear. But the truth also about us as human creatures is that a default place we easily go is to looking for problems, to looking for what's wrong, mm-hmm. um, and to orienting a, around fear. And that we're very easily, very easily, and an under the level of consciousness, taken to that fear place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I see, I see some, di- and I've, I'm just fascinated. Well, one thing I just want to say before we move on also, it's like that dynamic that you described of the place you grew up in mm-hmm. and the many worlds within the world and the and the experience of people having ground pulled out from underneath their, underneath their feet, like that is an American story that is yeah. intensifying in all kinds of places, right? Different yeah. details. But yeah. that is the Ameri- that is the 21st century story. Yeah. Um, And, um, you know, you have such interesting influences that brought you to this work that also are very defining of, you know, our cultural influences and kind of inflection points, Um, Mm. including, as you mentioned briefly, you... um, you, you got you were you were a tech kid I remember, yeah. let's let's give you credit this was before yeah. nerds were cool right nerds are cool now <laughs> true, they that, true that they were not back then <laughs> that's right um, and so you were into coding and yep. and hacking and I, yep. I love something that you said uh, you said a really good technologist understands that in order to hack something well you have to understand a system well enough to get it to do something it wasn't designed to do and that right. that is, is a skill set you bring to that's cultural right. change that's right yeah.
0: You want to so say some, Yeah. Yeah, so I'll, I, you know, I'll, I'll elaborate. Um, yeah, yeah that, that, that no, but that so you, you you nailed. I don't you your researchers are excellent because uh, um, that quote defines a lot of things about uh, my mm-hmm. life. So mm-hmm. uh, I did learn how to hack uh, by someone who taught me that you get, you got to understand the system well enough to get to do something it wasn't designed to do,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and that appreciation is how I've tackled. Like everything, you know. Since you know, the tech company that we formed was a, a type of technical hack on a on a on an innovation uh, limit that we had encountered. Uh, I developed this thing called culture typing, which is understanding which types of change a culture can handle at any given moment. And, and, mm-hmm. and by this, by culture, I mean like a, in, in a single organization, right? Mm-hmm. A business, or um, you know, or the society itself, right? Um, but applying this idea of understanding the, the system well enough to get it to do something it wasn't intended to do. And honestly, another skill that I, for anyone out there who has done coding, uh, I learned how to parsect very early. Um,
1: okay. What does that mean? You have to translate for so me. So
0: in the eighties, you know, when, 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 computers had only one color screen, it was green and you had to type <laughs> everything, you know, in via text, there was no really graphical interfaces that, you know, that, so in that time, um the way you got software to do stuff was by learning a list of code like you had to learn commands yeah you, had, you, you could only give it certain keywords to tell it what to do mm-hmm. um and i of course at 14 or whatever age it was i was like well that this is trying to figure trying to learn all the keywords is a pain in the butt so i needed to i needed to teach the the software how to read sentences so that Instead of figuring out keywords, you could just tell it, like literally, just oh type God. the sentence that what you wanted to do. Well, later on, I was told that that ability is called parsecting uh, and that the ability to get uh, computers to read sentences, when I had such little um, programming space, so you know the, the disk space was much much smaller than nowadays. Yeah. But anyway, the ability to get computers to read sentences was considered you know innovative, uh, <laughs> and. And the, and I guess the point I was just trying to land with it is, it's the combination for me the combination of understanding systems well, and then being able to parsec right. Can you can you critical path uh, the mm. connections here
1: mm.
0: so that for instance, uh, with asset framing, so asset framing is a cultural hack right? It's it's understanding how culture works yeah. well enough to use culture to change culture,
1: right?
0: right? And so. Uh, I was taught that culture is the transferable set of beliefs and behaviors that enables a group to survive. Now, mm. the great thing about that essential definition is, you know, uh, <laughs> I was also taught that essential definitions is definitions that are true in the broadest application of a, of a, of a, of a word. All right. So the cool thing about that essential definition of culture is it is true of organizational culture, right? Transferable set of beliefs and behaviors that enables the group to survive. It is true of social culture. It is true of music culture. It's true of bacterial culture. Like Hmm. this is Hmm. what culture is, right? And so in understanding that, that it's a transferable set of beliefs and behaviors that enables a group to survive, it became very clear that if I'm a black person, I'm taught to believe that I must deficit frame my people. I must dramatize the disparity Right. So that's the belief. Right. And then the behavior is to then stigmatize my people so that I can attract resources. Right. If I right. if I can define them by their worst threat, you know, greatest inequity, whatever, then I can attract resources. Well, this culture of denigration for dollars means that, yes, you attract the resources, but you do so by writing your population into the public consciousness as inferior, as uh Ineffective, as pathological—you know—all all these things are the only ways that people know to know us, right? Because we have a because the way that we have been taught to survive is by dramatizing uh, our injustices, which, uh, and I, I, think it's important to point out, the injustices are real. So we're not saying ignore any of them, right? <laughs> we're saying that is not what defines us. That's not what defines any. anyone, yeah. right? And
1: and you ended up um, walking into uh, this philanthropy, and again, you know, grappling with, with, (laughs) with framing and ways in which people and organizations that want to help, want to be of want to be of service, um, um, actually end up making some of those. You know, colluding yeah. and and actually, you know, catalyzing those moves you just described. Sure. Um, that also is a is a dynamic, a challenge that I think is is so alive in this yeah. right now, post twenty twenty. So, yeah. but you were kind of in there early, and yeah. So this, you know, just. You know when i when I'm reading you, it's not that I feel that I've been unaware of the dynamics you're talking about, right. but it's still so illuminating to just to hear, you know the terms that are used about disparities, disadvantaged, impoverished, <laughs> right. at right. risk right. um and what that does in the mind of the person who's trying to be of service and of the person who um yeah, could, is well, you, on the you, other end of those descriptors. You
0: mentioned that that uh, the way we talk about you know, the way we talk about framing doesn't feel judgmental. Let let me yeah, yeah. let me illuminate at least why for yeah. me. Um, number one, everyone who's in the social impact space wants to make the world a better place.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, that's their aspiration, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're defining them by their aspiration, if I'm if I'm applying asset framing, right? If we're defining ourselves by our aspirations to make the world a better place, then all these other things, you know, these negative consequences, that's not intentional. No, that that's accidental. So I'm not going to beat you up for an accident. I want to show you uh, what is blocking your worthy aspiration. Right? You want to do this. You 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 want to magnify human life. You want people to live more fully. You want folks to have greater opportunity. You want justice. You want freedom. You want all these things. So I just wanna show you how the instrument that you've been taught to use has a big hole in the bottom of the bucket, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and if we can um, recognize that unintentionally we end up stigmatizing and the consequences of that, then we can change the behavior and just literally help people. You know What I, what I wanna do with asset framing is I literally wanna help people who have committed their lives to making it better for all of us to have a fuller tool set and to recognize that you fall into a cognitive trap not by your design but once you see the whole it's very easy um to try not to step into it you know to to avoid those behaviors
1: and you know i i i'd like to talk a little bit more about you know some of the implications of this for example for journalism which is my field but but mm-hmm. i but i actually you know i feel like what you're um what you're doing I mean, you, you say somewhere like this is asset framing is a skill set, right? It's mm-hmm. a skill that can yeah. be learned. It's a day-to-day yep. level skill yep. that anyone can practice. And so, yeah. you know, I think I'd love to knowing that we have this really broad audience, <laughs> this broad array of humanity mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. all kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, but interested in these questions of what it means to be human and how we want yes. to live and who we will be to each other, Yes, that these are things that they can put into practice. So, I mean, let's yeah. kind of go there, like, okay. what you know, let, what are some of the? What are some of the moves that yeah, people can yeah. start to so make? So
0: asset framing is a cognitive skill, number one. Yeah. So it, it's a thinking skill, right? Um, for people who don't like words like cognitive, it's a, it's a thinking skill. Um, and really the, you know, if you're trying to figure out how to rudder your way through practicing it, the first question you have to test yourself on is, who do you think we are, right? Whichever group or population you're looking at, you know, give yourself a moment to become self-aware, ask and answer for yourself. Who do you think these people are? When you imagine them, when you visualize them, what do you visualize? Because if you don't visualize them aspiring and achieving and contributing, then just recognize your brain is coding them as a problem or a threat, right? Our, one of the things our brain you know, does reflexively is it tries to send signals to your, to, to your body as to whether or not you're encountering a familiar or something that is potentially dangerous, right? And right. so you either classify human beings as familiar, or as potentially dangerous. Like those are your brain does this sort of sorting on its own, um, and so I, I will back up and, and, and help land why that happens. Cause I think. I, I don't want people to think these are choices because they're not choices. Yeah, these, and you know, yeah. can I
1: just say one thing? I notice yeah, also yeah. is you don't use some of the language that's very commonly used around unconscious bias, and I'm just curious why. I feel I feel like there's probably a reason for that. And yes, let's look at the brain. Let's look at the at the yes. brain science actually that yeah. you're relying on.
0: Yeah, they're, 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 so the, the main reason is uh, I made it to college once upon a time, right? And I you know I go home in the summer, I hang out with my boys, and we talk about all the same stuff that you know. I learned in these different classes right except regular folks use regular words right <laughs> okay. and yeah and, and people who get degrees use a language that nobody knows what the hell you're talking about uh-huh. oh no no sorry uh but people who get degrees well, we
1: have to take it out for public radio but yeah okay. sorry about that that's sorry okay. about
0: that uh people who get degrees use language where no one knows what you're talking about uh, and so uh Asset framing, as I, you know, I, I did invent that term for the educate you know, for the college class. Um, but the, um, but all these things around implicit bias and stereotype threat and, um, you know, uh, all all that jargon. Mm-hmm. I, I t- we totally understand it. Mm-hmm. But if you can put it into normal language,
1: mm-hmm.
0: then people actually understand what you're talking about as opposed to, you know, impressing upon them that you've studied yeah. things that they well, don't there's, Well,
1: there's some place where you say... <clears throat> um, you know, this is essentially about defining people by their aspirations and contributions. In other words, present people with dignity. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 you know, even that word. You know, I'm, I'm very. One of the things about coding, you know, when you when you get into software coding, mm-hmm. is you have to be precise, right?
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. literally, you know, one you mistype a character and the software doesn't work, right? So. um, so one of the things about coding, or so the reason I bring that up is because uh, all the word choices we use are intentional. So hmm. dignity, if you ever look it up, it's a word that means to be worthy of respect, right? Okay. And so if you're going to define people in ways that make them worthy of respect, it has to be in the you know in asset or you know aspirational terms, and even um, this idea of equity itself, which is you know many of the folks who employ us ask us to help them work on issues of equity and engagement and you know, community building and the like. And so I always like to point out to foundation leaders and, and corporate leaders in particular, that every other time you use the word equity, right? Financial equity, right? Every other right. time you use the word equity, you, you are literally talking about what has value. right. And I'm just saying, be consistent. This is also, all of our conversations about equity, they're all about what or who has value. And if you're going to start a conversation about equity around people, mm-hmm. then you have to value the people at Not the center of the question. Not
1: who about who is a problem and who no. is disadvantaged, right? That's, that's right. the way it
0: gets right. All, yeah. Right. All that, all that disadvantage, broken down, at mm-hmm. risk, marginalized, all mm-hmm. those are, that's language you use when you're trying to cost control or risk control, mm-hmm. right? That's risk control language.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I just, you know, uh, I like to point out to folks, particularly the folks in the finance industries, um, there's a difference between you know, risk management and equity investing. Right, right, right. And so if you're talking about being equitable, yeah. then you have to define people by their assets. You got to say, what is it we're investing in? Right. We're not investing in poverty. Who invests in poverty? You're not trying to grow poverty. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, you're trying to invest in people's, you know, aspirations towards wealth. You're trying to invest in people's, you know, will to make a better future for their children or their community. Those are things that are investable. But not not poverty
1: and would you say a little bit about your understanding of primary mind is this kind of some of the sure. understanding of the mind the brain the human condition yeah, the, that, yeah, this that is, helps yeah. helps us understand why we do this and how to actually kind of work this, this out is of it.
0: huge you know so yeah. you mentioned implicit bias before you know yeah. one of the reasons why that that term uh, creates stumbling blocks for people is it doesn't let it doesn't make it easy for people to understand that Cognitive biases are not choices, right? You have no control right. over them, and so here's here's the way that I think people can understand it. Um. And and we teach this in asset framing. So simple fact of the matter is your nervous system, right? Your central nervous system, right, is physically connected to your brainstem. Like you know, it's one set of wiring. These are not. It's not a separate <laughs> right. system, right? right? They they connect. Okay. And so the same way that your nervous system is always on, always firing, doesn't need your permission to feel and to see and to sense, like it, it is always doing these things. The same way that is happening, the other end of that system, your brain, is always on, always firing, always pattern mapping, doesn't need your permission to do so, right? Okay. And according to you know the Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman, who we, we quote every time in our training,
1: And he's been on the show, too. He's amazing.
0: He's dope. Love that guy. Yeah. Um, So according to Kahneman, um, all human beings are prone to disregard information that doesn't fit the mental picture presented to it by its nervous system. Right. Right. And so the fact that our brains are always pattern mapping means that sometimes uh, you will look at a set of cars in a parking lot and you can sort of. Uh, make out the the impression of a of a face on the grill of a car, like the headlights and the and the grill of the car sort of look like a face, right? Uh, or you might look up into the clouds and you see pattern, you know, shapes of clouds that look like animals, right? Or look like something. That, yep. What I try to remind people is, uh, number one, you're not crazy. This is just your intuitive system doing its job. It is always pattern mapping. It says it's always saying this looks like that. Right. That's what it does. It, it makes sense of the world for you, and it does it a thousand times per second. It is literally faster than conscious thought. The same way your nervous system, right? And so for that reason, whatever patterns it's primed with are the patterns that it looks for. And so when you only refer to a people a certain way, at risk, low income, marginalized, disadvantaged, when that's all, those those are the only patterns you fed your brain. It is not your fault (laughs) that when you encounter such a person, you are primed to think these things. That's the pattern that your brain has for recognizing who is in front of it, right? Yeah. And so- but the point, the main point is, those are not choices.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Your brain does this instantaneously, literally faster than thought, the same way your nervous system works.
1: I think something I appreciate also, though, that you point out explicitly is that another thing that reinforces that, I mean, there's a lot that reinforces it in our culture, but one thing that reinforces it is that kind of in this, you know, since the Enlightenment, at latest, kind of everything in our world tells us that we're actually rational. And a lot of things are are actually organized around the idea that people are rational even if we don't behave that way. Yep. And and so that when we um which I, I feel like that 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 disjunction is really like, you know, coming into its own now. Mm. Um but so that so that it's not just that there's this there's this pattern making this happening all the time but we we have been taught that that the conclusions we reach are rational yeah and and that's a disconnect yeah. um, with reality and well, and one way you talked about asset framing is you're you're just you know by 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 focusing on like letting in the reality of aspirations and contributions you're giving the primary mind a fuller set of information to walk around yeah.
0: with yeah and and maybe I, I want to I want to, if you don't mind, Chris, I want to facet it this way. Yeah. Um, here's what I see going on. Uh, we have reached a point where our normal set of kind of cultural and governmental organizational systems, they clearly aren't adapting fast enough for the realities that we're encountering. Yeah. Like, as a society, as in, as individuals in society, we are creepingly and more and more aware that those in charge are not capable of securing us, yeah. right? And of course, that's innately terrifying, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but it, but it's, pretty, it's pretty clear, you know, whether it's pandemic or economic collapse or whatever has happened in the last year, there's always something yeah. that's proving that we're not keeping up, right? And so the reality that we are all, no matter what your race or gender or background, like the reality that we're all dealing with is the ways that we've done things, you know, the culture, right? The ways yeah. that we've survived must adapt, right? The transferable set of beliefs and behaviors, the ones we have are not surviving us, right? So we we must adapt. And the scary thing about that is, well, what to, right? How do we how do yeah. we do it? And the thing that I believe is a barrier that we can all kind of perceive, but we haven't been able to, to um, no one's put it into you know, like clear words or terms for us, a fundamental barrier that we have is as a culture, I'm talking about in the United States, as a culture, we don't know how to be pluralists, right? Our our democracy was founded on, the, you know, the, the you know, sort of the founding father myth. And, you know, like yeah. the, the closer you are to the founding father, the more comfortable we are with you having rights, to be honest. Like if, if you're a If you're a wealthy, white, heterosexual, you know, landowner, like we're more comfortable with you having rights, right? Um, uh, Where I'm going with this, uh, which may sound like a winding path, but where where I'm going with it is the simple fact of the matter is we are literally all in the same boat. We all have the same, uh, well, we all have the same set of aspirations. Like if you do a cross section, we overlap in our, our values and aspirations like 90%. Like it's really in our highest values our highest aspirations like 90% it's 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 yeah. amazing how much we overlap so if we're going to change our culture we have to change our narrative that's what it comes down to we right. have to change the mental models that our brains are using to make sense of the world because the ones we have right now they're failing us dramatically you know uh, so that's where like when i when i think about our work i love that this level of instability means we can actually make real progress on racial bias. We can make real yeah. progress on gender bias. We can make real progress on economic uh, instability and, and, and bias. Like, because the, the, the answers that we would have given 30 years ago, right? Nobody believes that anymore. <laughs> like you can't yeah. convince people yeah. of, 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 of the old path, right?
1: And so you're really talking about um, the story of our time. Yeah. How we tell it, how we make it. Yes. Um, And, you know, I I think that that same same direction we all kind of have imbibed through the water that we're rational Mm -hmm. means that we, in these last few hundred years, you know, in the West, which then influenced everything else, you know, forgot how powerful stories are and how powerful mm-hmm. our imaginations are. What a force these things are also in mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, and so so I'm thinking, you know, coming back, I know you're doing some work with the Solutions Journalism Project and perhaps yes. with, with other journalists. And, you know, something yes. that I, obviously I'm aware of it because I'm in media, but it's, it's a conversation that's happening all around um, is... You know, there's something, as you say, there are good people, and uh, and journalists are often also very, very mission-driven people. No doubt. Um, but the forms that have us investigate dysfunction, yes. and right, and focus just uh, s- with such intensity on what is catastrophic and corrupt and failing, um, are, are seem at this stage. You know, you c- you can look at history and you can see where where that led to things being made better but right now it seems that there's as you said there's all this reasonable despair and yes. fear and, and and that is deepening it and, and something that in in your i can't remember if you wrote this somewhere or said it but as i was as as i was investigating you um uh you know you said you said we crave the moral, and you're just really talking about at that nervous system brain level, we crave mm-hmm. the moral direction stories provide. Mm-hmm. And I think that is such an interesting way to underscore what is at stake and kind of a calling to the the parts of our society that help us piece that our story together. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I use ra- black uh, racial experience as kind of a divining rod for these conversations yeah. in part because that's where America, <laughs> we stumble all, like whatever yeah, we say, yeah. we believe you, you throw black uh, racial consideration and all of a sudden we go sideways. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and so to your point, um, when it comes to uh, the power of narrative, um, I legitimate, like sincerely uh, in my heart, uh, want to build a more loving society, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's possible mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we actually want it. It's not like people don't want who does you know who doesn't want to feel belonging and loved and appre- like we want this stuff.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? So oh I'm sorry, I lost our thread. Could you
1: um well I was just I was talking about the you know the moral direction that stories provide and yeah. and, and, and Ah I that's think, where I was, yeah. that's where I was okay. yeah.
0: okay. it, it, uh, your your point about the role that uh, media plays, you know, I've said this to David Bornstein, who is the um, co-founder of the Solutions Journalism Network, that if there is a a, uh, sort of narrative of of racial hatred in the United States, then the news media is co-author of that narrative and co-conspirator in the cover-up. It's very easy to understand from a sociological standpoint that when the media reports on populations and cities and neighborhoods a very specific and particular way and never counterbalances that narrative with any positives, then the only patterns that our brain have to draw upon are fear triggers. So if there's this sort of outsized overreaction to certain populations, it's because we've been trained to have it. And we've been trained by the evening news. We've been trained by the daily press. We've been trained uh, by the 24 know, hour uh, news feeds in terms of how to think about some people and others
1: and you're not and you're not and again in the least judgmental way possible you're not you're not talking about media that are out to stir up fear right I mean, oh no you're, you're, so i mean i would i think this was from something um that that solutions journalism had anyway it's like this is the example of so, the, so this is the original lead of a story, right? Yes. For example, yes, um, and it's just so familiar. Right? Um, the Latinx community in the United States has always been, for the most part, on the bottom half on income in the American society. The struggle to have, have access to health and mental care is part of the history. However, the COVID nineteen pandemic has come to intensify the problems, and that's how it starts. It goes yep. on. Yep. Okay. so And that's a very familiar way into story. And then here's a revised lead that I think your team took a look at. And it starts this way. So since 2014, Latinx people have constituted the largest ethnic group in the nation's largest state. They now represent 39% of the California population. And then it goes on to talk about in recent years, Latinx residents have made advances in economic yep. well-being, yep. M- uh, measured by metrics like reduced poverty rates, growth in business yep. ownership. And then it event, you know, after a couple of sentences like that, you know, yep. people elected school boards, local offices. Yeah,
0: they've made progress in everything except increasing for this. And
1: then, despite yep. this impressive social and economic progress, Latinx yep. residents have lagged behind other Californians. In achieving important goals like home ownership and income growth, and we can yep. now add to that list the disproportionate harm visited on the community by the COVID nineteen pandemic.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, w- with that example, that wasn't us. That was the California Health Care Foundation, I believe. Oh um, yeah,
1: right. But you, uh, but you had you've worked yeah, with we'd, them. Yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. yeah, wor- trained, we yeah.
0: and consulted, and then they and they, they applied learned it. To do this. They yeah. applied it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and what I want to underscore in those in those two different ways of framing. Mm-hmm. All the facts were accurate, nobody made anything up. Yeah. It's all, both, both framings are true, right? So we didn't have to invent anything. Uh, mm-hmm. The first framing, however, about how Latin American folk has always failed in these ways, that framing totally left out all the assets, all the aspirations, all the content. It, it, it characterized them literally without value. It left all their value out of the reference to them. Mm-hmm. The asset frame version started with their value, yet still told you about all the ways that they're not, you know, where they want to be. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's why we 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 suggest to journalists it is more accurate and honest reporting. You, you 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 when you when you're gonna tell the story where all you do is point out what's broken, but you don't point out what's working uh in, in a culture. Well recognize you're inclining you're inclining people to think that all that exists about that culture is brokenness. Yeah. They didn't come up with that conclusion on their own. They came up with that conclusion by your reporting. Right. And so that's what I mean by journalist. Journalism ends up being a co-author.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you point out that, that, of course, it's so, yes, the deficit framing is affecting the people who are hearing this, how they're, I mean, really what they're taking about how they're looking at the world and looking at certain people. But it also Eats away, creates cynicism and it just eats away yes. hope yes. in the people who are being described in that way yes. in terms of what is problematic about them. Um, you know, I was recently, I kept thinking about this when I, w- when I was getting into speaking of you, was two black men in New York City who are both brilliant and extremely successful. And they were talking about how... Um, how how upsetting it is for them to hear this language, which I think has been coined to again to be of service, like the school to prison pipeline, which is mm-hmm. like a, a rallying cry mm-hmm. cry for mm-hmm. making something better. But they said, you know, what effect does that have on exactly. black young people in That's those right. schools that are That's defined right. as? And they said, this is something. They said, you know, maybe it's a riptide, but it's not a pipeline. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. go on.
0: And, well, just so again, let's look at the let's look at how deficit framing has unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. So, I agree with the idea that saying school to prison pipeline suggests that some populations are born on their way to prison. Yeah, now just think about that for a second because that's. That's terrible. (laughs) No one is born on their way to prison. That's a terrible way of thinking about a life. All right. So number one, I understand the objection to school to prison pipeline, but let's drop back 30 years, right? In the 80s, (laughs) I was alive then. I remember when there was this dramatic uptick in violence in cities and neighborhoods and John DeJulio had put out his studies saying that there was a super predator emerging in our urban sitters, young people who are born godless and moralist and violent, like, and they happen to be black and brown, right? And so there was this in the 80s, there was this fear again generated. And the media liked to tell those stories, just in case you're wondering, right? So now there's this there's this idea that a monster is coming from the neighborhood, from the from the ghettos and from the inner cities, or you know, whatever, right? So there's this there's this feeling that there's a monster being baked. And in response to that fear, both liberals and conservatives pass more restrictive uh, policies, including the idea that any child who brings a gun to school or brings a weapon, any child who brings a weapon to school will be expelled. Zero tolerance, they called it, for weapons. And these zero tolerance policies were popular and proliferated. Well, zero tolerance for weapons or you know, uh, in these schools over time morphed into zero tolerance for any behavior that we don't like. And these policies were disproportionately reinforced on black and brown kids which led to them having extended periods of time out of school, which leads to truancy, which created this thing that some uh, marketing group started calling the school to prison pipeline. Trayvon Martin was of course uh, expelled under one of these zero tolerance policies, not for weapons, but for something minor that he had violated in school at the time that he was killed. The reason why I'm I'm contextualizing the school to prison pipeline fight is because We developed um, a fix for students bringing weapons to school that morphed into this bigger problem that we're now trying to fix. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you deficit frame, you your solutions end Mm -hmm. up creating problems that you have to fix later. Like we 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 built the thing that we're trying to solve now. If we had a different orientation towards our students. Right, if we define them by their aspirations to graduate, their aspirations to you know, to to contribute to society, to fulfill their own dreams. Like if 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 we recognize that inner city children still aspire,
1: yeah.
0: right? If we recognize that poor kids still contribute, then we would look for ways to remove the systemic obstacles to their abilities to do so. All right. And that goes well beyond whether or not they can bring a weapon to school. Right? Yeah. Anyway, so I, I No, that's fascinating. I, yeah. That's yeah.
1: So let's talk about the um, be me community that mm-hmm. you've created. Mm-hmm. Just talk about that, because that feels like that's where oh, it's one place where all of this comes together, right? That you're
0: yeah yeah. No, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about be me because mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways it's it's a culmination of the other things that I've studied you know yeah. or, or learned yeah uh, in my life. And here's the I mentioned before that. Um, The question that we all have to answer when we look at each other is who do you think we are right and so here's the the function of be me community um in my own email tagline uh i call be me community leaders who speak life right um we have enough sources telling us what's broken we have enough sources telling us what needs to be fixed we have enough people giving us constant fear triggers fear primers right so we're being hyperstimulated to be afraid, and,
1: and you're speaking of black men in particular. No, right? no, everybody. no. Actually,
0: no. In this, no. I'm talking. Yeah. Okay. You Krista, know, Chris, okay. is bombarded with <laughs> things. No, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. yeah. You're yeah. you're bombarded with things that you're yeah. supposed to be afraid of. You know, the, the the news media and the commercial media literally think that you know, get, uh, hitting your fear triggers yeah. will force you to pay attention. So that much is true. Like we're hardwired to pay attention to threats, but we just we just we've overdone this thing. We have exhausted people. Yeah. On what they should be afraid of and worried about and scared of, like they just, yeah. you know, um, the, the CDC CDCs has, has you know reported that news consumption is a health hazard, right?
1: <laughs> right. <That's>, right.
0: <laughs> yeah. you know, we're stressing ourselves out like it's yeah. crazy. Also, so what I'm trying to say is, right now we're in a society that is awash with fear triggers, so much so that we think it is the only way to motivate and engage people, and it is not. And what we've seen in BME community and what we've seen with asset framing is, when you learn this skill, when you learn how to asset frame, I'll I'll bring it back to BME, but this is a broader
1: point. Okay, okay.
0: When you learn to asset frame, you literally engage more people, have higher impact, make people more willing to do systems change and raise more money. Like we've shown that all these things happen when you learn this skill. So if you can raise more money, engage more people, have more impact, then why not Mm -hmm. consider this other skill, right? So bearing that in mind, I recognize that Black people and Black males in particular um, are affected dramatically by this cultural predisposition to fear, you know, what what I call denigrating for dollars, right? Mm -hmm. So the thought behind Be Me community is, why don't we gather the Black leaders who show up in communities, are trusted in the places where they work, go unrecognized and unsung because you know the public narrative isn't interested in this yeah. generative, positive yeah. stuff. Right? They only want to hear about the worst things. So we know that there is an entire population of builders who were in these neighborhoods and communities before protests ever happened. They'll be there during the protests. They'll be there after the protest. They are constantly feeding people's lives. They're constantly helping people to live. They're constantly helping people to own. They're constantly helping people to realize their voting rights. They're constantly helping people to excel. There's a whole infrastructure of builders, of doers, of people who love and care that gets totally ignored because they don't fit the cycle. So we're like, well, why don't we gather those people into a community, right? Why don't we acknowledge them? Why don't we resource them? Why don't we reinforce them? Why don't we let their love build, right? And then engage them with anybody else who wants to be part of a generative agenda, right? Yeah. And yeah. and again, it's not an oppositional one. We're not saying that uh, you know those who are... Um, you know, protest-oriented or caught up in a progressive narrative, we have nothing against those folk. Like, they, they are doing uh, vital, important work, and in fact, many of our members would fit under that category.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What we are saying is there's a complement, right? Uh, if, if half of our social impact work is about fixing broken systems, then the other half of our social impact work has to be about building high-functioning societies, right? Yeah. Better cultures. right. right. And so that's what Be Me community is about. Be Me is 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 Black folks building upon Black love to make a better society for everyone.
1: Mm. You know, I hear, I hear the influence of your grandfather in there. Yes, and and uh, I and mean, you use the language from the Black Freedom Movement, from the Civil Rights Movement of the Beloved Community. This is your yep. 21st century Beloved Community.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we you know honestly, and I. Maybe it's not the place to get so candid, but I feel like why not, right? Mm. Um, honestly, I feel like uh, I was taught again that God is a loving God, and my grandfather literally used to say, you know, he was, you know, he's a Christian. And he was, he was an e- sort of evangelical, but he was, he was love doctrine evangelical. Which mm. the way that works is instead of telling everybody they're going to go to hell unless they get in line, you know, do do what they're supposed. In the love doctrine, Grandpa said, "Look, what you do is you love people the way that God loves you." When you see a need, you try to provide. When 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 uh, you see a want, you try to you know f- fulfill it. When you see that people need hope, give them hope. Right? It costs you nothing. Right? Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, and he said, when you live that kind of life, when you, you know when your when your ministry is literally about loving people and and trying to make a better, um, trying to manifest God's love. If that's what your life is about, eventually someone will ask you, why is your life so good? You know, why are you so happy? Why do you feel so? So full. Why are you, you know, doing the work that you do? And he said, you know, when someone comes up to you and asks you, Why are you so happy? He said, then you tell them. Then you tell them about your faith and right. your, your your religion and your and your God and the belief that, that fuels your actions. I will say this, you know, BME is not a religious movement in, in any respect uh, at all. We don't we don't really even talk about faith. However, it is clear that the Christians and Muslims and Jews and atheists and Sikhs and uh, I'm trying to think how many other religions I know are in the are in the, the community. <laughs> but it's clear to me that the folks in be me community are people of deep faith, even if they're not religious or if they're not mm. spiritual, mm. right? Mm-hmm. They 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 literally, literally manifest their love. They show up and care for other people's children. You know they 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 protect people they've never even met. You know, it's just it's brilliant, and I love it. And and I love also that they're all black folks, man. Like mm. I mean, I'm no, sorry. Let me be clear. Be me community is not just for black people. I'm talking about our fellows. Our yeah. fellowship program
1: yeah.
0: uh, is all is all black leaders.
1: Mm. Um you say somewhere you said in many ways, BME community is a social network. It's that old, it's the old fashioned social network, right? It's the original kind of social network or a personal network of black leaders. Yeah. Um,
0: Can I tell you something on that? Yes, please. I know you you have another thought. Yeah. So I was at Knight Foundation when we finally started doing the the groundwork for BME community. And Mm -hmm. my uh, boss, Alberto argue, and, you know, he, he had charged the vice presidents, right? He had said to the vice presidents of Knight Foundation, we need to figure out ways to get, you know, we need to address the perception that black men are disengaged or negatively engaged in their communities. That, that, was, that, that was what he said to us vice presidents, right? And uh, I raised my hand and said, I, I want to take on that project because I, I know some black people, right? And so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but what I love is um, the very first iteration of BME as we were thinking about how to do this, I, I brought it to Alberto. I said, you know, here's what I think we should do. He said, ah, I'm not so, sh- I, you know, I can't really see the scaffolding on how that's going to work. But he said, yeah, hey, here's your budget, go do it. Like let's see mm. if you if you can figure out something that we, we haven't. And the reason why I, I, I share that story is because um he didn't have to see it. Mm. Right. Mm. He thought it he it it you know, it sounded like it was worth doing and he was willing to get you know uh resource me to give it a shot, right? Yeah. And so that's faith in, 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 in one, <laughs> one yeah. you know, one yeah. illustration. And of course it did work out.
1: Yeah. So so, I want to. We're going to have to circle to a close in a minute. But before sure. we do, I would love to just go through, again, for just that person out there who does whatever they do and whatever kind of institution they're in, uh, whatever kind of work they're in or community, um, how to practice this skill. Yes. Um, so, you know, I made a lot of notes. Um, uh, this stuff is very, very. Pragmatic and and yes. some of it is quite simple, if, yes. if not necessarily instinctive. Yes. Um So how would you you know what what, what would you give for some of those bullet points? What do you sure? Yeah, yeah.
0: First of all, recognize that asset framing is not about what you say about people. So if you can accept that, it's not at all <laughs> about word choice, right? We're not trying to find you know nicer ways to call people bad names. So it's not it's not that. Um, asset framing is about. What do you think about the people, right? So rule number one, it's about what do you think about them? Are you introducing them by their aspiration or their contribution? Or are you introducing them by something else? Is your first thought about them one that affirms the spirit of the person in front of you? And when you develop that, We'll
1: so, well, so I was going to say, so that first move is actually internal work inside yourself. It's all right? internal work. That's internal. <laughs> it's all, it's all internal. You get, you get yourself centered and you, you yes. talk to yourself. Look, I, you know, honestly,
0: Krista, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. being 100% and I, I, mm-hmm. I invite anyone listening to take the 100 day challenge and see if I'm right or wrong on this. Honestly, when you start practicing asset framing, your life gets better. You feel better. You see more life. You see more light in your day-to-day. You're more forgiving of people who have faults and flaws in your own family, right? So maybe I wanna invite your listeners to take the 100-day Hazard Framing Challenge and see for yourself whether or not your life improves, yeah. right? So, okay, so let me lay out these things. Yeah. Um, one, um, recognize that this is a mental skill, so it's not about what you, what you say, it's uh-huh. about what do you think, right? How do you think of people? Uh, And then the litmus for how you think of people is, are you introducing people by their aspiration or contribution? And remember, framing. Framing is all about introductions, that's all it is. Mm -hmm. How you introduce a topic frames the topic. How you introduce a subject frames the subject. It's just about how do you introduce it. So you you don't have to ignore anybody's problems or faults or any of that, but you never start with that. You always start with their aspirations, you always start with their contributions. Uh, so that's that's two. Uh, one is like, I just want to make sure people are following the list, right? Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: One is it's a it's about what do you think. Two is think about people's aspirations, think about their contributions, right? Three is actually think about what are what is obstructing their aspirations and contributions. And the reason why I throw in bullet three is because I don't want anyone running around saying, "Oh, asset framing is just focusing on the pro, uh, the positives." Right. Right. I'm like, no, no. By definition, you must think about challenges. If you're not including, if you're not including the challenges, you're not asset framing. And the reason why it's so important to include the challenges is because if you just, you know, try to focus on the positives, then you're gonna ignore or diminish or negate the legitimate systemic obstacles that people have. Right? So we're not trying to say everybody aspires to be free and happy, and so therefore <laughs> there's no work to be done. Right. Right. No. So.
1: Yeah. And like, you know, one of the just applications of that, that, Mm -hmm. that I found that I feel like, I feel like is taking hold culturally, Mm -hmm. but it's where I think you're giving the context for why it matters. It's like talking about people as people first. Mm -hmm. So not homeless people, right? People experiencing homelessness.
0: So let's, let's, let's use that exact pivot. Mm -hmm. So people first, uh, you know, language that, which came up out of the disability movement and, and um, positive psychology and, and those things. All of these are along the lines of asset framing. They're contiguous. Yeah. The thing that I would try to remind people, people first is a great instrument for um, recognizing that you're dealing with a person. It humanizes, uh-huh, you know, so-called uh-huh. humanizes, right? It, it, so people first forces you to recognize that you're dealing with a human being. Um, it does not necessarily asset frame.
1: Uh-huh. Okay. Right? So, so what would you, be the ass, yeah, to asset asset well, frame? That,
0: here, here, here's where it comes in. If the thing that you're describing about the person first mm-hmm. is an asset, then you have asset framed. If you've put people in front of their deficit, then you have people first, the deficit framing.
1: You're, ha- you're halfway there, right?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. is that, you know, yeah. People who are homeless. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah you said people, right. but what do, we know, what do we know about them? All we know is that they're homeless. We don't know what their aspirations are. We don't know what their contributions are.
1: So what are. would what would the work you would do be to complete that?
0: Yeah, actually, one of my favorite examples comes mm-hmm. from a real-life policy mm-hmm. um, uh, change, right? So um, you remember when marriage equality became law, right? What you know, one part of that story was that a group called Mass Equality had paid for research around lives and life experiences of people who are in the LGBTQ uh, communities, right? And um, they found that without the benefit of legal marriage, a really high percentage of, of people in the LGBT, LGBTQ, madam I'm speaking too fast, yeah. communities had stayed together, right? They stayed together through um, cancers, they stayed together through bankruptcies, you know, they stayed together through real hardships. Right. So one of the winning campaigns, an exact quote from it was, people who love one another and are committed should be allowed to marry. And I'll point out to you that is people first. Mm-hmm. And it is also asset framed. Right. 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 People who love one another and are committed should be allowed to marry. So they're literally being defined by their aspiration to marry
1: mm-hmm.
0: and their contributions of love and commitment. Mm hmm. And what's fascinating about that particular case is that when marriage equality was fought exclusively as a human rights issue, which it is as a justice issue, which it is right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It had been fought to stand still for five decades. It right. didn't, you know, it, it, you know, we were righteously correct, yeah. but in terms of moving the policy.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's, we had, that's a fight, right? You've turned it yeah. into a fight rather than,
0: well, but, 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 a, but, a, but a, but a right, but a, a righteous fight, like a a, 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 a just fight. So I I don't want to, I don't, you know, I'm not even trying to criticize the folks who argue that way. No,
1: but what you're, it's this, it feels like a subtle shift, but it's a subtle shift with really dramatic consequences that you take it out of that context. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And and so we talk about applying the skill of asset framing. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to illustrate. Here's Mm -hmm. a, here's a, here's a, here's an example where just the act of defining people by their aspiration and contribution, Mm -hmm. here's what happened. Right. And Mm -hmm. from a cognitive standpoint,
1: there was some place uh, I saw a, you give an example. Oh, do you want to finish? Sorry, go on.
0: Oh no, I was gonna go just just wrap it. Um, what happens from a cognitive standpoint when you do that mm-hmm. is when you say people who love one another and are committed should be allowed to marry. On an intuitive level, it makes sense. Like you just well, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And once you get the intuition on board, you're predisposed. That your intuition is that autonomic system that Kahneman talked about, the one that's automatically doing stuff.
1: Yeah.
0: Once the autonomic system accepts the premise then whatever comes with the premise becomes much more acceptable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway.
1: Well, and there was some place where I saw you do this with this phrase, at-risk, at-risk sure. kids, and you yeah. said, okay, what are we talking about? You're also you're talking about students, right? Yeah. You just, yeah. So you just talk about them as students. Um, yeah. You're not it, a, it, yeah. yeah. In,
0: in most cases, at-risk youth go to school, and mm-hmm. not all, but most, mm-hmm. right? And so if you talk about you know, students, and what their aspirations are. What you know, they might even if they just aspire to graduate, right? Students who want to graduate face these obstacles, mm-hmm. then people are much more inclined to say, well, wait a minute, why should any kid have to live, you know, have to deal with systemically underfunded schools, systemically over over policed communities? Why why should if this kid just wants to graduate, grow up, and contribute to society, why do they have to do it with this level of barrier?
1: Yeah.
0: Right? And when you and when you asset frame. Instead of using this sort of deficit framing jargon, when you when you define the student by their aspiration to grow up, you know, and graduate, right, then the unjustness of the obstacles becomes easier to appreciate.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Whereas when you talk about an at-risk youth, well, here's the funny thing about an at-risk youth, and, and the Frameworks Institute has shown this, right? When you When you use terms like that over and over and over again, people don't think about being at risk as a circumstance, they think about it as an identity. Right. And they believe that at-risk youth are born on their way to prison,
1: right? right, right.
0: They're the ones attending the school to prison pipeline. Right. And from, again, from an intuitive level, the causation just attaches to the kid, right? Yeah. They're at risk because of some choice they made or their parents made, right? It's not systemic problem, it's, it's a culture of poverty. That's on them, not on,
1: yeah.
0: right? And so all that language makes it easy to scapegoat. It makes it easy to dismiss People who are experiencing a disparity mm-hmm. as if they are the cause of their disparity,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is you know ridiculous. I think this right? is
1: something from the from the um, the materials that Solutions Journalism used or that you helped them define it. Like Poverty, for example, is a state, not a trait. But yes. you're, you're pointing out how easily our minds make that shift. You know, I saw this um, event you did for Aspen Institute where you where you asked people to turn to their neighbor um, yeah. and just. And, and, and just think about, just like look at their neighbor, possibly a stranger, possibly mm-hmm. someone they know, and just think about as much as they could that is wrong with this person.
0: <laughs> yep, yep, yep.
1: Um, and, you know, that's an exercise that just reveals how absurd this is, this whole yes. way we've been living.
0: <laughs> yes. By the way, uh, may, I, may I, Krista, share that yes. part of the reason why I, I do that exercise is twofold. One, um, your intuitive system, right, is the fast system that Kahneman talks about. But yeah. it's also, like I said, your nervous system is wired to your brain. So when you get a gut feeling, it's because it is it is part of the neurology that you know that that, that wires that connects your brain to your the rest of your body, right? And so part of the reason why I, I, I give that example is to point out to people that on a gut level, you know, it's wrong to do that. Yeah. It feels bad when you have to do that, and someone can see you doing it yeah. right? when you're looking right at them, yeah. and you have to think, you know try to notice everything that's wrong with them, inside you go, ugh, I, I don't like it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, 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 I like to do that exercise to illustrate to people, in your spirit, you know that's not the way to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: um, I, I do get a sense that the hacker in you um, has a lot of confidence that, that, this, that this is a shift I mean, you know, I've heard you say like that we can flip this script in a short period of time um, and that that new generations actually do have the capacity right now to change this narrative at scale.
0: Yeah, well, let me let me maybe contextualize that a little bit.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I believe that cultures are self-perpetuating, just like any spirit. So um,
1: Hmm.
0: there's nothing automatic or easy about any of it. what I am excited about is when the old system is high functioning and high delivering, people are much less likely to divorce it. Okay. But here we are in one where it's clearly not serving us. So we have an opportunity to do something new, you know what I mean? And yes. people want to do something new because they know it's not serving them, right? So that's what I get excited about. Like mm-hmm. the potential for the change is real. Um, one of the other things affecting it, by the way, is demographically, you know, the baby boom generation, the civil rights generation, like those folks have been adults for 50 years. They've been adults for half a century. Everything about our sense of policy and priorities, like everything about our culture has flowed through one generation for half a century. And that generation just happens to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of everything right now. Right. And, and (laughs) and, And they're aging out of institutional power. Yeah. So as we experience that instability that's created by that, let's be clear, that's a that's it that's destabilizing but as we experience that that instability the other thing that's going on simultaneously is the most diverse generation that we've ever had is becoming the mainstream
1: yeah
0: and that is why they're going to fundamentally challenge whatever existing narratives you know around what a gender is right yeah. what women's roles are yeah. who is black or white or whatever you know, even the way we think about race like how how fluid those right, definitions right. they're going to they're going to challenge all that yeah because it doesn't fit their experience. You know, as our mainstream changes, they're naturally gonna challenge those things. I, I like to remind people that you know you, you see Black Lives Matter and you see Me Too and you see these movements and you say, oh, they, they, they sound like the movements from the 70s. And I say, yes, but no, here's what's different. Back then, you were talking about marginalized groups fighting to be seen and recognized by the mainstream. Now you're talking about an emerging mainstream, like they, they are. Mm-hmm the the new mainstream. So they're not really asking for your permission. They're letting you know what they care about, <laughs> what is going to be increasingly centered as as they age, right? And so that is the opportunity that I see. Like we we can we can recognize that in a democracy that is truly plural, right? Because uh, the other fact that this creates is you and i and most of your listeners like we are living out the last generation of white majority yeah.
1: like yeah.
0: the generation of americans that has no racial majority they're already born they're in schools yeah. they're matriculating yeah. so this is it
1: yeah. <laughs> this is
0: the last yeah. time that one racial group can carry the majority of this democracy and in that type of democracy you know when when you have racial pluralism right where where no there, where there is no majority then the skills To be able to see each other's value becomes a functional skill. It's not. It's not a nice one to have. Right. It's the. It's the only way to govern.
1: Something we have to learn in first grade. Um, I do want to ask you this. Um, just given the beginning of your life and how you also have experienced how that that that. That completely, as you like said, different planets. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. my your story is different from my story, but I also grew up in a very small town in Oklahoma, mm. and live in a you know on a different have lived in on different American planets ever since, yep. and uh, it it's so right now also as part of that instability that you described, because what I'm you know we're also the place we're in is that that generation is 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 is, is le- losing its power, but the I feel like there's this in-between time right now Yeah, where that's right. right there's not it's that's not like a are. clean handover. That's right.
0: That, oh that's exactly right. Right and there's really, a, and yeah. there's a
1: generation or two in here that's going to be all formation and a lot that's of mess. Right. That's and right. in this instability there are new people, new groups of people who feel um, that they're right For, who who feel that their livelihood and their children's futures are threatened. Yeah, absolutely. And, right and and so how do you and and yeah, I just, I'm curious about how you, do you know, but think about that. that yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that has become a dangerous dynamic, right? It's oh become a yes. new dangerous dynamic.
0: Well, that's what I was saying about my home state.
1: Yeah, yeah. Your home state. Michigan. No, but like, yeah. honestly, there, there's a
0: generation of people. So, you know, th- there's a whole set of workers uh, in Michigan who feel like it is morally wrong the way mm-hmm. the economy is changing. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really, like, if you could just pause and think about that. Not Not that it is just wrong for me. Mm-hmm. but that it is morally wrong which makes it innately unjust in their eyes. Yeah. Right? And so you're right. Folks who, you know, back when the the working class economy was was strong, uh their their families in Michigan where you could you know, you could work in a factory and have a home mm-hmm. where you live, have a cottage up in the north, Yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe have a boat yeah. and it's all off of like your labor.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, nobody's going to be able to do that in the future. Nobody can do that now. Yeah. And so, uh, so to your point, there are folks who feel legitimate loss, and there are other folks who will say, "Well, the reason why you're losing out is because of those brown people, because of those women, because of yeah. those foreigners." Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like they, yeah. they, they, they will, they will assign a false
1: yeah.
0: um, causation. So,
1: in that sense, this is I mean, this is what I'm trying to get. Like, how asset framing is like also useful in this this real, um, you know, c- almost civilizational polarization that we have right now. Like it, yeah. it's it's it's. It's useful all around on every side.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'll I'll I want to illustrate it in a way that mm, I hope lands. Yeah. So when we first started Beaming Community, we were intentional about finding and funding the folks who are trusted on the ground in their neighborhoods and communities, right? And it and this, we originally started with Black men, right? And so what was interesting is some of our very early fellows, a significant number, I'd say a third, maybe. Um were fel- former felons, like they 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 had been mm-hmm. incarcerated for major crimes, uh, in, you know at some point in their lives. And what I remember about that, <laughs> I was still at the foundation when you know we did our first round of grants, and so you got to have conversations with lawyers about stuff like you know like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> are, are we gonna fund you know ex felons to go into schools and classrooms, that kind of stuff, right? Right. Uh. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is, um, these brothers had done whatever they had done wrong. And they had changed, right? They had done their time. They're out of prison. They're trying to, you know, reestablish their lives, get back to their communities. So here's where asset framing makes sense for them, for your listeners, and for the country. Hmm. In their experience, the simple fact of the matter is they can never change whatever crime they, you know, committed before. They can't, you know, some some of these guys that robbed people, some of these guys that killed people, they can never change those things. And so the question becomes, are they to be forever defined by something beyond their control? Or can we define them by what they're doing now to aspire and contribute to the well-being of us all? And so asset framing came from this work. It came from mm-hmm. we have to define these men by their commitments to helping kids to get opportunities, to making communities safer, to mm-hmm. providing economic opportunity. Like, these are the things that they were literally doing rather than calling them ex-felons.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. They can't do anything about it. Now, the brothers, of course, embraced this because they were tired of living, living under the yoke of things beyond their control, of being stigmatized, and they really were making meaningful contributions. Once we, got, once we did this for a couple years, here's where it becomes relevant to all the rest of us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? We started a course where we started to explore the U.S. Constitution right? and, and the values that are innate in it. Right? And we have a conversation with black leaders now about... Okay, you believe in asset framing, right? You don't think you should be defined by what's wrong with you or you know, by things that have been that you've done wrong in the past, more accurately. You don't want to be defined by those things. What about America, right? <laughs> Can we as black leaders define America by its aspirations,
1: hmm.
0: right? And its contributions, still never ignoring its faults and challenges and where it falls short, the same way asset framing doesn't ignore any challenges. Yeah. But how are we going to introduce ourselves to this nation? is as a nation that actually promotes the concept and has fought for the concept of liberty and justice for all. Can you believe that that's what this nation is about? Because if you can believe that that's what this nation aspires to
1: be,
0: then you have to recognize that African Americans have fought for those very things since before this nation had a name. We have every right to be seen as full participants in the creation of this democracy. We are not secondary characters in this narrative and we have a responsibility to help this nation to be what it has always aspired to be and that is the relationship that we as black people can have to america and ourselves that is the relationship that america can have to itself (laughs) and i think asset framing ends up being a way for patriotism to be generative
1: Hmm. Hmm. so um the question of what it means to be human is vast, and i i i'm it's kind of the it's kind of the operating question of of my work, and I feel like the work you're doing is just so richly informing a 21st century, you know, reexamination and opening up of how we live that question, and just and I, I i just wonder it's a, it's a big question, but I wonder, and in some sense, we've been talking about it. All this time, but if I ask you, like, what you keep learning through this life you have, this work you do about what it means to be human, like, how would you start talking about that just today?
0: Yeah, well, I'm gonna go back to the old guy again. Uh, my grandfather, uh, <laughs> you know, he was a wise dude and, like, very simple. Like, all, all of his stuff was very practical, but then when you stop and think about it, it's deep, you know? Yeah. And um, I always loved that whenever my grandpa would say, Well, you know, in the real world, Blah 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 blah, like whatever came after that, right? <laughs> right? And but here's the thing anytime he said the real world, he was talking about spirit life. Your mm-hmm. spirit life is the real world, mm-hmm. as far as he was concerned, mm-hmm. and everything else we do is an expression of what's going on in our spirit life, right? And so, I, I love that his orientation and my grandmother's orientation to people was the spirits that live through us, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and I guess um, what I mean by that is there is a way of looking at this where you know human beings are an entity and then we sort of take on different spirits or attitudes. The way that my grandparents looked at it is spirits exist <laughs> mm-hmm. and people, they, they occupy people, <laughs> right? Right. You know, right? The spirit can come into you. The spirit can leave you. Mm-hmm. You will live and die, but the spirit will endure, mm-hmm. right? And so the question then becomes, what is the spirit that you want to feed? Hmm. That's it. Who who do you think you are? Like what? What do you? Whatever whatever you feed will grow, you know. And so, if you want to believe in justice, be just. I mean, I'm sure there must be some wise people who've said this somewhere, but you but you get the idea. Like yeah, I I, I do not subscribe, and I, I I for any of you know your listeners who may be black. I have never once subscribed to this notion, it is a white man's world. I've heard people say those things in a white man's world. I'm like, yeah. what are you talking about? That's, <laughs> right. that's, that is, absurd. I don't know that's what you're talking about.
1: It's actually not something. the real world. It's to, absurd. Yeah. Like
0: right, the world belongs to the creator or right. whichever your faith may be. Right. And my right. grandmother, here's a, here's a, here's something we share. I, I do tell the story in the fellowship all the time, but I'll, for any of your folks who are Christians, there's a passage in the Bible that gets quoted a, a lot that says, you know, to humble thyself before the Lord. I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, right? Yeah. Um, but Irma Lee, who's from Louisiana somewhere, you know, a church lady, <laughs> my grandmother. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Irma Lee translated that to me long ago, and I never forgot her way of saying it. She said, because, you know, that, by the way, that passage is, is used a lot to tell people to be humble, right, to be modest. And my grandmother said, <laughs> Yeah, it says humble thyself before the Lord, the creator of everything. You 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 must be humble in God's presence. But to God's creation, why would you humble yourself <laughs> to to to, to that no, no. You have a divine spirit in you. People must see it, they must feel it. You must let mm. it shine. Like mm. you're not supposed to hide mm. your your blessing and your faith and your love under a rock. No, 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 no. Mm. Humble thyself before the Lord, but for everybody else shine. Hmm. Right. So they can see a path.
1: Well, I think you embody that. I, you know, I, I, uh, I feel like you, there's so, such audacity and pragmatism to um, something I s- saw you, somebody I saw you describe this work, which, you know, develop a more inspiring and accurate and fundamentally different narrative about humanity and engage people accordingly. I think your grandparents I mean. would be proud. Yeah, thank you. <sighs> All right. Um, it's time for you to go. But this has just been such a delight. I'm glad you're in the world and I really look forward to putting this out and sharing it with people. So thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you. You're um I mean I'm sure you've heard this before, but you're uh an excellent interviewer. Uh, it's very easy to talk. Hmm. Um, and I hope we get a chance to meet in you know real life someday. I
1: do too. I think we will. We have a lot of people in common. So blessings to you. I think I have to send you back to Chris to okay. get all the technicalities wrapped up. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks, Krista. Yeah. Bye bye.